I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Algorithm. After Vaughn's release from prison in August 2013, he returned to Gary, and his confirmed murders appeared to begin early in 2014 with the disappearance of Tierra Beatty. She told me she was going to call me later, and waiting on her call, it never happened. And although her fiancé, Marvin Clinton, uncovered that a man was using her cell phone and provided cell records to police, it appears police didn't investigate this lead. They looked through the file. They didn't have it. So we don't know what the other detective did with it, if he just threw it away or whatever the case may be. And when Vaughn kidnapped and sexually assaulted a sex worker, her rape kit went untested. And that left Vaughn free to continue to kill. You know, sexual assaults in particular, the departments are under-resourced, they're not followed up on, and this is what happens when you don't follow up on them. Sexual offenders continue to offend. But could Vaughn have been stopped even earlier if police had just heeded Hargrove's warnings? From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm. I'm Ben Kiebrick. After I'd gone through Vaughn's interrogations, I reached back out to Hargrove, I'm not sure if he remembered who I was. So um, I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. Which podcast is this? I tried not to take it personally. It had been almost a year since I'd first contacted him. And while I'd been going back and listening to my interviews with him over and over as I worked on the early episodes, to him, I was just some random guy who'd reached out to him with the vague idea that I was going to make a podcast. But when I let him know I'd managed to get my hands on Vaughn's confessions, he lit up. You did? Yeah, that's one of the things that I was really excited about and, and wanted to share with you. Well, good for you. You're making news. Yeah, so got a lot of audio. It's almost all of his confessions. I told Hargrove that I'd gone through Vaughn's confessions looking for some sort of smoking gun that would clearly connect him to one of the crimes Hargrove had identified. But it was hard 
Vaughn had confessed generically to committing many murders. How many people are you responsible for killing? I couldn't even tell you. In this lifetime, I couldn't even tell you. But Vaughn hadn't provided many details about these crimes. And when it came to cold cases in Indiana, he'd only provided specifics about two incidents. The two murders he said he was responsible for in Hammond when Detective Ford had pressed him. And these two crimes that Vaughn described didn't match the ones from Hargrove's algorithm. Both were shootings and not strangulations. But I did now have a much better sense of Vaughn and his MO. So I decided to go back through the crimes Hargrove had identified and research them to see if any stood out. I was looking for crimes from when Vaughn was living in Gary, especially where the victim might have had a history of sex work or drug abuse, or crimes where it appeared the victim had been discovered in an abandoned building long after they'd been killed. Hargrove's algorithm had identified 15 women who had been strangled between 1991 and 2007, and he'd identified what he saw as two rough patterns. In recent years, several women have been strangled in their homes. In at least two cases, a fire was set after the women were killed. Also, starting in the 1990s, we've seen several women who were found strangled in or near abandoned buildings. I decided to start with one of the more recent cases on Hargrove's list. Hargrove's letter stated that an unidentified female victim had been found in an abandoned garage on February 26, 2007, and her body had been set on fire. This would have been a couple of years after Vaughn's incident with Sharitha and the gasoline, so I wondered if Vaughn might have a fixation with fire. Plus, he'd mentioned in the interrogations that the incident with Sharitha had made him go back out of control. It had awakened his murder rages, so I thought that might be an indication that he'd started killing soon after that. It turned out that there had been a breakthrough in the case after Hargrove had sent the letter to Gary Police. She has been dead for seven years. Her name remains a mystery, but the Lake County, Indiana coroner's office is hopeful that new forensic artwork will give a real name to Jane Gary Doe. In 2014, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children put out a new facial reconstruction of the victim. They were hoping that a member of the public could identify her. The new picture was published in the local paper, which also mentioned that she was thought to be somewhere between 16 and 25 and that she had scars in various stages of healing on her face and torso. She was thought to have been killed about a day before the body was discovered. Over a year passed with no leads, until August 2015, when a woman named Kiara Hill recognized the girl in the sketch as her cousin and reported it to the Gary police. She said the girl was 15-year-old Erica Hill from Fitchburg, Wisconsin, and DNA confirmed Kiara's identification. That family member who identified Erica Hill had been holding on to a terrible secret. And it turned out Kiara didn't just know the victim. She knew the murderer as well. Investigators say the relative, who does not face charges, had been fearful all of these years of retaliation if she told, but decided she wanted to end the pattern of abuse. Kiara's mother, Taylin, adopted Erica in 2001, after Erica's grandmother, who'd been caring for Erica, passed away. Taylin was a special education teacher who had three kids of her own. She had a good reputation in her neighborhood. But Kiara said that behind closed doors, Taylin was cruel. Kiara said her mother beat all of her children, but Erica was abused more than the rest. 
And as the abuse escalated, Taylin withdrew her children from school, worried that teachers would notice the signs of abuse. One night in February 2007, Taylin called Kiara at work and told her to come home because of a family emergency. When Kiara came home, her mother told her to go into the bathroom, but wouldn't tell her why. Kiara saw Erica lying on the floor. Her skin looked gray. Taylin had shoved a rag deep into Erica's mouth, and she'd ended up making Erica choke to death. According to Kiara, her mother told the kids to put Erica into a black garbage bag and take her to the garage. Kiara said that she and the other siblings were terrified of their mother, so they complied out of fear. They left Erica's body in the garage until it started to smell a few days later. Then, Taylin had her children load Erica's body into their van, and they drove from Wisconsin down to Chicago. Taylin left Erica's body under a highway overpass. She set fire to the body and pulled out some of Erica's teeth to try to make the body harder to identify. And then the family returned to Wisconsin. But Taylin started having second thoughts. Allegedly, Taylin began worrying that an elderly person might stumble upon Erica's remains and have a heart attack. So they drove back to Chicago, picked up Erica's charred body, and took it to Gary, where they left the body inside an abandoned garage. Kiara said that if anyone asked about Erica, their mother would say Erica had moved to live with another family member in Illinois. She was never reported missing. The incident haunted Kiara, and years later, after she'd moved out of her abusive mother's house and begun going to therapy, she finally gained the courage to confront what had happened. And in 2015, she came across the newly commissioned facial reconstructions of Erica, and she reached out to the Gary police. The new details led investigators to charge Hill with multiple counts of abuse and first-degree murder. The police were able to verify much of Kiara's story, and Taylin ended up being convicted for the murder and sentenced to 20 years in prison. I told Hargrove about Erica and how she was killed. To me, that, that's an example of the challenge of this, right? Some of the data is just going to be stuff like that, that an algorithm can never make that connection. Oh, yeah, no. No algorithm is going to be perfect, and no computer is really going to do the work of, uh, of police. I mean, it's, in the end, it's hard work to solve these. Boy, this is a strange case. So uh, in 2007, Gary was famous enough that uh, if you have to get rid of a body, you know to go, go there, even if you're two states away. That's crazy. Like they don't have enough trouble, but this is the place to drop your bodies. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Erica clearly wasn't a victim of Darren Vaughn or another Gary serial killer, but her case shows how hard it can be to solve these cold cases. Even once a body is discovered, it can be almost impossible to know when and where a victim was killed. As I continued going through Hargrove's list and reading old newspaper articles, it felt to me like the murders fell into two categories. There were murders where the information was extremely scarce, where I sometimes couldn't find a single article about the homicide. And then there were others with more details, details that had been published because police had eventually identified a suspect and information about the murder had come out in court. For example, the very first murder on Hargrove's list, Suzanne Router. Hargrove's letter said that Suzanne Router was found on November 27, 1991. She was found stuffed into bags on a back porch, and she'd been strangled. Darren Vaughn would have been about 20 years old when this took place, and this would have been before he joined the Marines and left the area. I found a newspaper article about Router's death. She was a secretary who disappeared just before Thanksgiving in 1991. She was later found dismembered in a trash bag outside an apartment building. But from the article, it seemed like she wasn't found in Lake County, Indiana, 
but rather in Chicago, and that she lived in Chicago as well. And it looked like while the case had never been solved, police had made an arrest and charged someone for the crime, a man named Anthony Presley. Presley lived in the apartment building where Suzanne was found, and it turned out that he knew her. According to some they were dating, others said he was her drug dealer. Regardless, he became the prime suspect in the case, and he was eventually charged with the crime. But I was confused. Why was this case on Hargrove's list in the first place, if her body wasn't found in Lake County, Indiana? I reached out to Presley's lawyer, Richard Kling, Hello, how are you? to see if the case was somehow connected to Lake County. When I emailed you, I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if you'd remember the case at all. It's almost 30 years old at this point. What, what makes this case stand out to you? You know, I have tried over 500 murder cases. Um, there are some cases that stick in your mind. And this was a case that stuck in my mind because, number one, we had, a, we had a good defense to the forensic evidence, if you can call it forensic evidence. And first of all, let me tell you that what we will talk about is not at all based on attorney-client privileged issue. It's all based on my observations and what I know about the case from, from the case, not from words of Mr. Presley. Um, I was appointed to represent him. He was charged with murder of his girlfriend who was found on the back porch in a body bag. And his defense was that he had been dealing drugs and that he owed the person he was dealing with a lot of money. The person came and essentially told him, if you don't pay up, something's gonna happen. And the next day is when his girlfriend was found in a body bag. So I, I don't think it has anything to do with him being a serial killer. It was a once in a lifetime thing. The Chicago Police Department claimed that they'd done a hair analysis that linked Presley to the murder. There was a hair which was found in the body bag, or a couple of hairs on the back of the body bag under the tape. And they were examined by the Chicago Police Department. And in the opinion of the Chicago Police Department's hair analysis, he came to the conclusion that the hair on the body bag was morphologically similar to the hair of the defendant. At the time, DNA didn't exist. So the only benefit of the hair evidence was that under a microscope, you can morphologically tell the difference between Caucasian head hair, Negroid head hair, and Mongoloid head hair. They have different textures, different components inside, and you can definitely tell the difference. Today, the follicles from those hairs might be tested for DNA that could either conclusively link the hairs to Presley or show that they belong to someone else. But at the time, the hairs were just examined under a microscope, and this hair analysis could only reliably determine the race of the person the hairs had come from. My cross was very simple. My cross to the hair examiner was, when you say it's morphologically similar, that's because you know it came from an African-American. Is that right? Yes, it is. In fact, the head hair is morphologically similar to the two front jurors, is it not? Yes, it is. And it was morphologically similar to the head hair of the judge, isn't it? Yes, it is. No further questions. And that, that was essentially the case. That, that blew apart their case. The only thing they had really was the head hair and the body on the back of his porch. It's not good to find your girlfriend's body on the back of your porch. But he had an explanation as to why she was there. And it was a sign by the uh, person he owed money to that you don't pay up. This is what's going to happen. I think that was a, a good summary of the whole story. So I, I came across this case in, you know, what I thought was a list of all crimes that had happened in Lake County, Indiana. And, and then this is actually like a, a case in Chicago. Do you know if 
any police from Wake County, Indiana or something like that would have been involved or if there's some connection where it would have ended up in a database? No, they would not have. And to my knowledge, they were not. Okay. Uh, to my knowledge, it was strictly a body found on the back of a porch in Cook County. They had the guy who they believed was responsible, and that was the end of the investigation. You know, whether it was tunnel vision, on the other hand, it's a, it's a pretty clear tunnel when a dead body is found on your back porch. And there's a relationship between the defendant and the victim. Yeah. So I don't think Indiana was ever involved. I asked Hargrove if he knew how a Chicago case had ended up on the list. I started looking into Suzanne Router. It looked like she was actually murdered in Chicago, Illinois. Yes, yes, just over the line. Okay. And so is that, you know, it was a case when you're looking at the Chicago metropolitan area, you identified that one and felt like it fit in with the other cluster. Oh, in fact, I think she was originally coded uh, in Lake County and it was a mistake. Okay. Um, so no, I think it was a miscoding originally, although um, she does look like part of the pattern. I was surprised to hear Hargrove say that because from what I'd learned, to me it didn't seem like she was part of the pattern. Then that's one where when you look into it, her body was found in the trash can of this guy who was either her boyfriend or her drug dealer or maybe both. I think the fact that Router's body had shown up in the trash can of one of her acquaintances was just too much of a coincidence for it to have been a random murder conducted by a serial killer. And as I looked into it more, I'm not sure about Hargrove's explanation for how she showed up on his list. I don't think an error was made in the coding of Router's death, because there's another unsolved strangulation case in Gary for the same year. Santina Williams, a 31-year-old black woman who was found hung in the bathroom at 4822 Gary Street in Gary. I can see how police investigating Hargrove's list might have dismissed it. When the very first murder is actually in Chicago and police had identified a strong suspect in the case. But you have to remember, Hargrove was working with anonymized data. He was trying to link cases from newspaper articles to the cases from the algorithm himself from halfway across the country because the police refused to talk to him. Also, Hargrove had never claimed that every murder identified with the algorithm was the work of a serial killer, just that he'd identified a type of murder where an unusual number of killings had gone unsolved, and that therefore, these murders were more likely to have been done by a serial killer and should be given extra scrutiny. But while Router's killing in Chicago was likely unconnected to Vaughn, interestingly, Chicago has his own cluster of strangulations that the algorithm identified. And in his interrogation, Vaughn claimed Chicago was where he went to kill. Illinois probably has a whole lot of... They have more than Indiana, let's say that. Yeah. They have way more than Indiana. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The first time I spoke to Hargrove, I mentioned that police had monitored Vaughn's cell phone shortly after he'd murdered Africa, and they saw he traveled into South Chicago. Well, there are plenty of unsolves. Maybe he had something to do with some of those. Sources told the Chicago Sun-Times that after murdering Africa, Vaughn had spent more than 12 hours driving through the south suburbs of Chicago, and police in the neighborhoods of Harvey, Markham, and Hazelcrest searched 26 abandoned homes with a cadaver dog. Hargrove hadn't heard about Vaughn's connection to Chicago, but he said he was interested in a cluster of over 50 strangulations there. We are convinced that there's a, there are active more than one serial killers working the south and west sides of Chicago. They've all been strangled, almost always sexually disrobed in some way, and uh, a great many of them put into trash cans. I don't think we're done knowing all of the people that Mr. Van killed. You're the first to tell me that he had been hanging around Chicago. 
Uh, do you know what part of Chicago? Because if you go to the map we've done of the Chicago murders, there's a very odd element. There is a linear pattern on many of the Southside murders, which happens to exactly conform to the Chicago Transit Green Line. Um, we've told the Chicago police that. We've told them we're sure it's not a coincidence, but we don't know what it means. It could be that uh, the killer is using mass transit. It could also mean that um, it's a hooker walk under the elevated trains. That's, that's possible too. So we don't know if it's an indicator of the MO of the killer or just where the targets are easily available. We don't know. But I'm pretty sure it ain't a coincidence. The uh, linearity of the pattern is striking. When I talked to Hargrove again about Vaughn's confessions, I wanted to tell him specifically about what Vaughn had mentioned about murders in Illinois. I called it my mistakes. You're rageous? Yeah, my rageous. When stuff don't go right, I go looking for out. I usually try to go to Illinois where I have my guns. But if I don't have a way to get there, or I'm like right now I'm watching my sister kids, so if I get upset, I can't just leave, I'm on schedule. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that schedule compresses how I do things. What are the windows that cause you to go into a rage? Last year it's really kind of, I can't work. I went to get my ID, they wouldn't give my ID. Just so much, I'm just like, I'm tired. Does it do anything for you? I won't say it releases pressure. Cause really I just, my brother tells me I'm crazy. I tell him all the time, I just wanna walk in something and blow everything up. I guess what I'm asking, uh, how do you connect the rage with these people that they're right all it does is take the wrong person to say something or it triggers something from my past that's why I really can't give you Illinois because Illinois probably has a whole lot of they have more than Indiana let's say that they have way more than Indiana Vaughn said that he'd killed more in Illinois than he had in Indiana and remember what Hargrove had said about the murders along the train line Here's what Vaughn told detectives when they asked him where he'd stay in Chicago. Where were you staying at over there? I don't have to stay anywhere. You just? I just, I get on the train, I get on the bus, and I'll be like, I know, I'm moving. I try to get far away from my family when I felt myself slipping. Yeah. Yes. He said there that when he felt himself slipping into a murder rage, he'd go to Chicago because he liked to keep his murders far away from his family. But a few days later, in another interrogation, Vaughn changed his story. He repeated that he'd killed many. How many in Chicago? Chicago? Don't put it It's a lot. It's a lot. How many do you recall in Chicago? I know for a fact I at least killed maybe over a dozen in Chicago. Over a dozen in Chicago? Right. But this time, he says that these Chicago killings weren't part of his murder rages. Instead, he says that all of the Chicago killings were gang-related and that they'd taken place in the 90s and early 2000s. Chicago has a lot because that's where most gangbangs go in Chicago. We think the first time in Chicago, about 10 or 11, would be E. So I've been, in fact, I lost my virginity in Chicago, so. That's a long time. How many of Markham? I'm gonna kill Mark. Harvey. 
Harlan Coach of the North. Chinaman City. Chinaman City one. How long ago? Like I told him, all early 90s. So I didn't stay too long after I got down into the service. I started traveling. Okay. And this, these would be uh, all yeah. males, females? They'd all be males. All these are all males? They would all be males. This is, this is all gang related, so they would all be males. Between what years? From, you have to go to 89 to 2004. Towards the end of the final interrogation, Ford asked Bond if he'd ever confessed to murders in other states. Do you think that we'll ever find any of the murders you did in other states? I doubt it. I, I know what? I ain't gonna say y'all won't find them. Say y'all already found them. I know for a fact. The one in California, one ones in California. I know y'all found. Why do you say that? Because it was everywhere. You get it? Was it was everywhere? For they know area. It was like they was having a field day. Like we got murder over here. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't worried about it because all stuff was untraceable. I didn't go in the house. I didn't load the gun. I just checked to make sure it fired. And if y'all find a person to kill it, ain't gonna be my fingerprints on it. Then like the gun came back to Indiana, good old US steel mill, stripped down, dropped in the furnace. Don't have to worry about y'all. Bullets sold out to whoever wants. Take them, y'all can have them. So if y'all have found some of my murders, I know mm-hmm. this for a fact. Hammond and found some, Texas. DC. Yeah, Texas and found some. What about girls? Yeah, ain't gonna never find no. No women in Texas? No. I don't do, that's what I'm saying. This is a new thing. This is more of my anger toward, like, I got locked up for a prostitute I paid. And see, in my mind, while I was locked up for five years, I said I should've just killed her. That was my thing. I was upset, I should've just killed her because disposing of bodies are easy. We're in Texas. Y'all got an ocean. I know that sounds weird, but y'all have an ocean. And the ocean is probably the best, like Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan probably has so many bodies in it, it's not funny. They, everybody, wash up, they wash up every now and then. Right, but by the time y'all get them, it's useless. If I find a way, because I can be resourceful here and there, say we discover one that's out of state. I won't give you nothing out but of state. We'll just hold on to what okay. I'm saying. And I can keep you in Indiana. Still not going. Even not if going. it's written out, I can keep you in Indiana. I'm not going. I'm trying to say this. I'm not going to open any other jurisdictions. Like, I gave you ones in Gary because mm-hmm. I felt they needed to get. And then pretty much you and Zico were all right, guys. Gary, Gary's a cesspool. I have no respect for nothing in Gary. So if you was to find 13 of my murders, dig up a building or they knock down a building and find Gary, can, I don't want to be disrespectful. They can kiss me where the sun don't shine. <laughs> They'll just have unsolved on their books because they got a couple of unsolved on their books. That's probably mine. Vaughn said that in addition to the out-of-state murders he didn't want to confess to, he had also committed additional murders in Gary that he didn't want to confess to because he hated Gary. But the interrogation ended rather abruptly after police learned that Vaughn had met with the lawyer. If we found something that, that you had done, or I know you're not going to talk against somebody else, right. I already know that. Would you ever let us know that we were on the right track? Anything with gang activity, y'all will never get an answer from me for. Okay. 
if y'all could actually come to me and say, we think you killed this person. We know you probably killed him with somebody else, but could you tell if you killed him? And, and I know it's a person I killed that maybe didn't need to be killed. I don't know how that's gonna work. Cause I'm not even supposed to speak to you. Not my lawyer came to me today. He said, y'all not supposed to speak to me. I'm not supposed to speak to y'all. You said you saw a lawyer today? Yeah, he came to see me today. He gave me a lawyer. Cause I'm going to court tomorrow. Who, who did? Uh, uh, y'all gave me a lawyer. Matthew Ann Finch. You mind if I write that down? Right, cause he told me don't speak to y'all. I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. Cause he wants to do some <laughs> other shit I don't want to do. You could have told us that in the beginning. Well, he's not important to me because I might have to fire him because he doesn't agree with my policy. He doesn't believe in capital punishment, which I don't understand how y'all gave me a lawyer for capital punishment. I told you. I don't get the lawyers, man. I don't have. Right, but I mean, y'all spoke to me. They could have told him, like, hey, he, 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 because I believe in capital punishment probably more than y'all believe in capital punishment. I'm more a Wild West person. We got a problem with you. I'd rather just call y'all three and get it done. If it's my way, we still be in the West. I don't like you. Just go on outside and get it over. At the time, Vaughn said he didn't want to confess to any murders out of state because he wanted to get the death penalty and he wanted to get executed as quickly as possible. But somewhere down the line, he changed his mind. So what exactly happened there? And might it mean that Vaughn would be open to confessing now? Next time on Algorithm. There's not an easy answer to your question, Ben. I mean, it, it's from the very beginning, it's I want death, I want death, I want death. And then all of a sudden, about three days, four days before we cut the play, he changed his mind. We're the second biggest county in the state. I mean, given the numbers that we have seen at our agency of reporting people, I cannot imagine what it would be like for a law enforcement officer with that many cases on their desk. They ended up stripping him down naked and putting him in a restraint chair, and they put some kind of vest on him, wheeled him into court, and Teresa just went absolutely ape shit. Do you know if he heard about the whole Hargrove story? Yeah, I talked to him about it. This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima Elkeali, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey guys, I I just wanted to say I really enjoyed all the messages we got after the Q&A episode. There were a lot of great suggestions of cases to look into. I haven't gotten a chance to respond to all your messages yet, but I will. And thanks to everyone who left reviews on Apple Podcasts. I, I really appreciate that as well. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.